Well, well, welcome to friends, fans, and colleagues uh, back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. I am your longtime host, Karen Tate, and uh, you were just listening to a great band out of Las Vegas called Zingaya, and uh, that cut of theirs is called Nomad's Land. Uh, they always make me feel good. Uh, there has not been uh, anything that they have put out that I haven't liked a lot. Uh, so if you're ever looking for another um, artist to add to your musical repertoire, uh, look up Zingaya, Z-I-N-G-A-I-A. And um, I want to let you know I am thrilled tonight uh, to have uh, a great male voice talking about a subject that uh, more men should be talking about, and I'm, I'm so glad for our, uh, our guest tonight, Robert Jensen. Uh, tonight's topic is End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men, and um, we're going to jump right in because there's a lot to say, but first let me tell you a little bit about uh, Robert. Um, he's a professor in the School uh, of Journalism at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, he's a board member of the Third Coast Activist Resource Center there in Austin and, uh, and the national group Culture Reframed. He's the author of um, The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men, uh, put out by Spinifex Press uh, just last year, and obviously that's the topic of uh, tonight's conversation. But he is incredibly prolific. In fact, we started talking about some of the titles of his other books that would make great shows as well. Uh, I'll just read off a few of those. Um, they include Plain Radical, Living, Loving, and Learning to Leave the Planet Gracefully, Arguing for Our Lives, A User's Guide to Constructive Dialogue. I, I get the feeling that's something he probably uses in Texas a lot. Um, All My Bones Shake, Seeking a Progressive Path to the Prophetic Voice. That one certainly intrigues me. Getting Off, Pornography and the End of Masculinity. The Heart of Whiteness, Confronting Race, Racism, and White Privilege. Citizens of the Empire, The Struggle to Claim Our Humanity, and Writing Dissent, Taking Radical Ideas from the Margins to the Mainstream. Uh, he's also the co-producer of the documentary film Abe Osheroff, uh, One Foot in the Grave, The Other Still Dancing, put out by Media Education Foundation, which chronicles the life and philosophy of the longtime radical activist. Um, and an extended interview uh, Je uh, Robert uh, conducted uh, with Oshroff can be found online, and uh, we can provide that link if you're interested. And um, also uh, Robert's um, website is his name, Robert W. Jensen, J-E-N-S-E-N.org. Um, he has lots to say, and uh, all of his books sound just delicious. Uh, so, Robert, please uh, welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Uh, thank you for being here with me tonight. Well, thanks for inviting me on. It's great to be with you, Karen. 
Well, I hope, you know, as as the words left my mouth, I thought to myself, hmm, maybe that wasn't, um, maybe it was rude of me to say, you know, living in Texas, uh, you know, you probably (laughs) have learned to, uh, uh, you know, to have constructive dialogue. Uh, You know, myself, I grew up in the South. New Orleans is where I hail from, and I'm nothing like the people I grew up with now. And I can imagine I would need your book if I ever went that back there for any length of time if I was going to have a conversation with anybody unless we were talking about the weather. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it seems like the topics you're interested in or all of the topics, uh, I mean, from your book titles, or all of the topics my listeners are interested in. And I guess I wonder, is Texas getting more blue or – um, are you, uh, you know, do you stand out there like a sore thumb? Well, uh, you know, I live in Austin, Texas, which is the liberal bubble in an otherwise very conservative state. Uh, I teach at the University of Texas, uh, a very large university, which has students from all over. So uh, I feel uh, I feel like I do live in Texas very much, even though I am in Austin. And in some ways, it. It is not the most hospitable place because my politics are left, radical feminist, which is not exactly the political mainstream of Texas. But, you know, I also, I grew, I was born and raised and grew up in uh, North Dakota, in a small, you know, small city, Midwest, uh, predominantly rural state. Uh, not, I don't have a, a very cosmopolitan background. So in some ways I feel at home in a place like Texas. But over the years, um, I, I've grown considerably uh, further to the left and to radical political ideas. So you're, you're absolutely right. In some ways, I don't fit at all. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it feels like to me the only thing that's going to save us is what some people would deem radical ideas. But, you know, I don't think the ideas are really so radical, you know, um, uh, and, and we'll get into that. But so many, you know, it annoys me so much when I hear, you know, people talk, for instance, about Bernie Sanders and his views. Um, you know, I mean, he's just sort of getting back to uh, FDR, real democratic principles, you know, which we've seemed to have forgotten. And, you know, uh, I remember Oprah was interviewing a woman from Scandinavia, maybe it was Norway, and Oprah asked her, so being a socialist doesn't bother you? And the the woman from Scandinavia said, well, we just believe the things we're doing are humane. And that's really what it boils down to, it feels like to me. You know, the, these so-called radical ideas are just the humane, evolved way to look at the world. But, of course, I'm biased. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think that you're right, that there is a, a growing awareness that the way the contemporary world works is simply incompatible with any decent moral principles. And And by that, I don't mean that my moral principle should guide us. If you look at, you know, people's, whether it's a theological or a secular base, if you look at most people's professed moral principles, they have to do with notions like the inherent dignity of all people and the need for some sort of rough equality to make a society work and and solidarity, the notion that we have obligations to each other. All of these are very, in some sense, mainstream principles. And if you look at the way the world works, of course, the current political and economic systems are not consistent with those values. So, uh, you know, most people would agree that 
that things are not working. And I think the question is in, in some sense in diagnosis. What's the, what's the root cause of the problem? For me, radical politics means going to those root causes, talking about patriarchy, you know, a system of institutionalized male dominance, talking about white supremacy, talking about the both ecologically destructive and I think humanly destructive nature of capitalism. And when you get to that, there's actually a lot of disagreement. Um, you know, so one fundamental question would be, can we imagine a, a, a decent human future? Can we imagine any human future at all in, an, in a capitalist economic system that's premised on unlimited growth? Well, I don't think we can. Lots of people disagree with that. So I think, um, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. We talk about being as polarized as ever in our political history. And in some ways that's true, not because people have such different values in a sense, but because we have different analyses of what is the nature of the problem. And, and there you find a whole lot of disagreement, of course. Well, and I think some people like these, uh, some like some of these ideas in theory, but then when you really unpack them, they have a problem. And and I'll just give a, you know just two brief examples. Um, and you know I've had some of my you know white women friends jump on me because um, you know I said no, I can't go along with the idea that because women have been discriminated against, we can now be the discriminators, you know, uh, or uh, it seems like, you know, women don't, white women don't want to recognize their white women's privilege, just like some men don't understand white male privilege, you know, and how it has, you know, they have had these benefits in society that some people, you know, that they take for granted that some people never have, um, and and maybe they really don't want equality when it gets right down to it you know they say they do uh but but what it would take and what it would really look like you know i wonder how many are really comfortable with yeah i think uh there there are always gaps between what we profess to believe and want to achieve in the world and what we're willing to do and that's true of all of us i think which is just a way of saying nobody's perfect in some sense but i think you're right that um we have to look, from my perspective, we have to look at all of these systems, the way they interact, and what it's going to take mm -hmm. to really challenge the unequal distribution of wealth and power that results from them. Now, I am, you know, a white male. I've been educated and, and have a kind of comfortable middle-class life. I'm an American citizen, so I've lived my entire life in the most powerful country in the history of the world and the wealthiest country in the history of the world. So, you know, on almost every aspect of my identity, I have to be willing to be critically self-reflective and challenge the, the very system. So I, I guess I've had a lot of practice. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a friend of mine always says, Jensen, if you'd been born good-looking, you would have had it all. Um, and, and that's <laughs> a, a way of saying that, you know, in the role of the dice, because, of course, none of that is earned or achieved. It's all simply by virtue of, you know, where you're born and who you're born in the world. And I think it is right. hard um, to, to always, in a sense, be on task and always be on guard, but that's what we're called to do. So, you know, we all do struggle. I've been lucky also because I, I have a university job 
uh, in a sense, I get paid to sit around and think about these things. Um, in a way, uh, you know, the society subsidizes me to think about these things. Now, in most universities, the goal of the university is not to challenge all of these things, but to support them. So um, there's a little tension in my life in that sense. But um, I, I've been incredibly fortunate to be able to spend most of my time you know, thinking about these things and then thinking about how to talk to 18-year-olds about it, which in retrospect has been probably the most important part of, of my career is that I've focused on undergraduate education. And it's it's an interesting to task to say, okay, how am I going to explain all this to a bunch of 18-year-olds? So um, mm-hmm. that's, that's affected my writing a lot. I, I try to write in very straightforward, plain language, not to dress it up in academic you know jargon and and right. that's what that's what I've been able to do and I'm grateful for it and at the same time I'm struggling like everybody else to try and make sure that my actions in the world my statements in the world are consistent with what I claim to be my moral and political values Right. Well, and one question about the students, and then we're going to get on to your book. Um, mm-hmm. Since you are immersed there with so many millennials, um, are you confident that they are the future, that they're the ones that are going to um, fix all of this? Um, you know, we hear about they're, you know, uh, so much more inclusive and they're not homophobic and they want uh, – uh, you know, more equal distribution of wealth and paid college and all of that. Um, I mean, is this just the, you know, the blue state millennials, or do you, uh, or are you seeing that in Texas as well? No, I don't believe that anywhere. I, I have no faith that young people are going to magically transcend the mistakes of their elders. Um, you know, I've been in university life now for 30 years as a graduate student and a professor. And um, I think there are some questions on which younger people clearly, you could say, have made progress. I mean, the most obvious one is in regard to um, the status of gay and lesbian people. Um, The kind of prejudice that was common when I was in college still exists, but it's not as widespread. But I think uh, on the big questions, racial justice, gender justice, um, a critical awareness of capitalism. I don't necessarily think millennials, young people, uh, are ahead of older generations. Um, you know, if we take the obvious one about white supremacy and racism. There's a, you know, we're we're hearing constantly stories about how that phenomenon manifests itself on college campuses. Um, a lot of these systems of power and oppression are very tenacious. They're very deeply embedded in our society. And I don't think it's going to magically just evaporate with each generation. And and so um, I, I I don't think I'm cynical about that. I think I'm realistic about how um, okay. it it takes more than, than just getting rid of us old folks <laughs> for these things to change. <laughs> now, certainly there are lots, Fair of enough. Places, yeah, lots of places on my campus where I see students challenging, but um, I see lots of places where – those patriarchal white supremacist ideas are as entrenched as ever. 
Okay, well now that you burst my bubble, let's get, <laughs> let's let's get on to get on to your book here. And again, uh, the title is uh, "The End of Patriarchy: Radical Feminism for Men." Uh, and you know, like uh, like we you know, this so the obvious. Uh, what led a man to embrace radical feminism? And why don't you uh, define radical feminism too? Uh, you know, how is it different from just what we might call feminism? Yeah, so uh, for folks who remember some of the early second wave feminism, which is the term we use to describe the, the feminism that emerged in the United States in the late 60s and 70s out of that time of incredible ferment in the United States, uh, there were competing ideas about how to understand feminism. Um, the, the ones we hear the most about are liberal feminism and and socialist feminism and, and all sorts of other things. Uh, and one of those competing ideas was what came to be called radical feminism. And for me, and, and from the women I have learned from, radical feminism means that the focus is on patriarchy, uh, a, a system now several thousand years old of institutionalized male dominance that is really rooted in men's claim to either own or control literally women's bodies, primarily women's reproductive power and women's sexuality, that the heart of patriarchy is men claiming control over the, the ability of women to reproduce and women's sexuality. That means that the radical feminist perspective has always focused on those two forms of control, and in the recent years, a lot of that has been around a debate about pornography and prostitution from the radical feminist perspective Pornography and prostitution, what I tend to call the sexual exploitation industries, are ways that men claim the right to buy and sell women's bodies for sexual pleasure. And the radical feminist critique of that has produced a lot of debate, not only in the general culture but within feminism. But to me, that's what radical feminism is. And I first bumped into this idea 30 years ago uh, when I returned to graduate school uh, it was literally half my life ago. I was 30 years old when I went back to graduate school. And I was interested in questions around freedom of expression, which led me to this feminist critique of pornography, which I knew nothing about prior to going back to school. And I came to graduate school with no knowledge of feminism, no experience. Um, I was pretty much a, a, a normal, putting normal in quotes there, a normal guy who thought feminism was pretty crazy. But when I first started reading these feminist writers, especially their critiques of pornography, when I started meeting fellow students who identified as feminist, when I took a class from a feminist professor, I realized that I knew nothing about feminism, that I had only the caricature of the culture in mind when I thought about feminism, and it was a real education for me. For me, the the appeal of feminism was not only kind of intellectual, that it made sense that I would read this and say, ah, that helps explain the way society operates. But it was also very personal because, like a lot of men, I had always struggled with the dominant culture's conception of masculinity, uh, what now is often called toxic masculinity, this idea that to be a man you have to always be in control, that the goal of men is to take charge, to conquer. And, of course, along with this obsession with control and conquest, it comes, you know, predictable levels of aggression and violence. And I had never felt very comfortable with that conception of being a man. I hadn't been very good at it. I wasn't, you know, the big tough guy. 
And so it was not surprising that I found a feminist critique of those conceptions of masculinity attractive. But then I realized that, you know, it wasn't just me who had never felt man enough, that most men in this culture, even the ones who I always thought were the kind of epitome of masculinity, you know, the high school quarterback or whatever, uh, what I've learned is that most men feel anxious and unstable around this conception of masculinity. And so uh, the argument I make to men in this book is that there are always good reasons to be a feminist to, you know, for political and moral reasons to support women's liberation. But there's also a self-interest in it that if we as men can embrace a feminist and including a very radical feminist critique of patriarchy, of the social system we live in, uh, we can find a way to free ourselves from the very, um, I think, destructive conceptions of masculinity that most of us are raised with. Well, and that makes perfect sense to me because, you know, I've always felt, uh, as you say, you know, uh, there's so many guys out there who are probably put in a box uh, and, you know, uh, they, and they're trying to play a role that they mm-hmm. don't really uh, feel comfortable with either, um, you know, or maybe they're the artistic type or they're just not the, you know, the macho uh, dominator. Uh, and, and why wouldn't they want to go through life with a, you know, with an equal partner? It takes the stress off, you know, uh, it, it, or so that made sense to me. Um so, so yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it would make sense that if they're not comfortable with that, you know, what we're calling toxic masculinity, that they should just reject it. Um, but I guess maybe it's not so easy to just reject it. It's absolutely not easy because every message around you in the dominant culture is telling you that this system of male dominance is not only acceptable, not only good for you, but it's natural, it's inevitable. Uh, the message is really that, you know, patriarchy is just normal human interaction. And that's one of the most, I think, in some ways successful propaganda campaigns ever, uh, to get us to believe that ever since the beginning of the human species, we have lived in societies based on male domination. And part of what I, I, I just summarize the work of very good historians in the book who help us understand that that's absolutely not true. You know, human beings, homo sapiens, you know, people that are no different than you and I basically, have been on the planet at least 200,000 years, maybe as much as 300,000 years. Well, patriarchy, this system of, again, institutionalized male dominance based on men's claim to own or control women, that's at most six, 7,000 years old. It doesn't come into existence until the, the period of human history after agriculture, after we settled into what we call civilization, which is always one of the great ironies, that when we started creating civilization, we got distinctly uncivilized as a people. All right, that means that, you know, for more than 95% of our evolutionary history, we lived in much more egalitarian societies, not matriarchies, not societies based on female dominance, Mm -hmm. but hunter-gatherer societies, which is the bulk of human history, that weren't perfect Mm -hmm. because human, human beings are not perfect, you know, as long as we've been around, we've been capable of violence and all sorts of other nasty things. But these were societies that had profoundly more egalitarian social structures. They were much smaller, you know, hunting and gathering bands Mm -hmm. probably no bigger than 150. And, of course, they weren't arguing over all that stuff because 
human beings at that point in history hadn't acquired all that stuff. Nobody was arguing over, you know, the Cadillac and the driveway because there was no Cadillac. There was no driveway. Uh, right. But that's important to remember that our evolutionary history is not in this domination-subordination dynamic that we now assume is normal. Uh, and that, I think, is something that's been lost. People just assume, well, you know, men are bigger and stronger. It's always been this way. Men yeah. get what they want. Well, so, I, so, so, yeah, go ahead. So, Robert, um, uh, I, I mean, I know there's lots of theories about, pay, you know, how patriarchy mm-hmm. came to be. Do you have a favorite or one that you think makes the most sense, or do you think it was different in different places at different times? I, I think the answer is almost always the latter, that – if you look at anything in what we call prehistory, that is the period of human life on this planet where there are no written records, and we have, you know, at best kind of a little bit of archaeological evidence, um, some evidence from, you know, hunter-gatherer societies that have survived into the modern world. Uh, but we're always piecing these things together. And there are, as you say, competing ideas about how all this happened. Um, I'm, You know, I'm not trained as a historian, and, and I read this in some ways as kind of a lay reader, but it does seem that, that it, it seems quite clear that none of these systems of male dominance really started until we settled down, started farming, created cities, eventually, you know, city-states, eventually empires, and that's when you get people really struggling over the control of surplus, originally just surplus grain, and, the, you know, the first wealth of the world was agricultural products which gave rise to hierarchical societies and, you know, a, a warrior caste and a priestly caste and, you know, then the peasants. And it's, an, it's a story that we've seen play out over and over again across the globe. And so the origins of it are I, probably always going to remain a little uncertain. But we do know that it is only a very recent phase in human history. And, you know, that's important just like, challenging white supremacy where people say well you know white people have always been in charge well you know that's not true that's clearly not true Mm -hmm. Uh, all of these systems of domination have to be challenged when they make claims of being natural there's nothing natural about any of this Uh, it's all a product of human choices over time and we have to resist it Okay. All right. Well, we're going to take a break, um, and uh, I have a word here from Joe Carson I'd like uh, listeners to uh, to hear. And uh, when we come back, um, you know, we'll jump into um, how radical – uh, how the radical feminist analysis helps us maybe better understand rape or prostitution or pornography. Okay? Great. Uh, but uh, – but here's Joe Carson. Hello. Let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is what Drusilla Pettibone said on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I don't think I can comment on it adequately until I've had a chance to watch it a couple more times. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, 
The info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was obviously very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also so pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. Welcome back. Uh, if you're just tuning in, um, I'm Karen Tate, and this is Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And tonight uh, we have with us uh, Robert Jensen, and our topic is uh, his new book, uh, The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men. And um, we were just about to jump into the question of how radical feminist analysis helps us understand rape, prostitution, and pornography. So, Robert, why don't we start with rape? Yeah, um, this, this is just all the fun stuff to talk about in the world here. Um, so, I yeah. think, you know, we, we live in a world now uh, in the United States where there are rape crisis centers in every major city, domestic violence shelters, 24-hour rape crisis hotlines, and a, a different kind of awareness of sexual violence than from when I was born, you know, in 1958. And why do all those things exist? Well, they exist because of feminist uh, activism, especially radical feminist activism, that helped us understand the question of sexual assault in a different way. And especially for younger people, I think this is really important to recognize that before the feminist movement that emerged in the late 60s and 70s, rape in this country was really seen as a fairly rare event that was the product of, uh, you know, deviant men. A small Rape was a, committed by a small number of deviant men who engaged in this pathological behavior. Well, what the feminist movement helped us understand is rape is much more common and that it is not simply psychologically disturbed men who rape, that in fact the profile, the psychological profile of rapists is varied. And many men who engage in sexual activity that meets the legal definition of rape are in fact normal in, in, in that sense. And by normal, of course, I don't mean good or you know, admirable or the norm we we seek to achieve, but normal in the sense of every day. And so I think that's the, easy, the easiest way to summarize what feminism, and again, especially radical feminism, helped us understand that in a patriarchal society like ours, rape is normal, normal in the sense that it is an everyday occurrence in the lives of many women. And if you expand beyond just the legal definition of rape and consider a category I call sexual intrusion, that is the unwanted sexual attention that women deal with in their lives. And by that I mean everything from, 
you know, cat calls and harassment on the street to what we call legally sexual harassment in the workplace and in schools, uh, domestic violence, sexual violence, everything up to the extreme, of course, which is men's violence against women that ends in death, you know, murder. All right. If you take that whole range of experiences, literally every woman in society experiences some aspect of that unwanted sexual attention and threat. That means rape is normal in a sense. Um, and if if that's true, and I think it, it without question is, then we have to ask, what what's the support system for that? How can that state of affairs continue? What are the messages that not only we give to, to boys and men about what it means to be a man, but what messages do we give to girls and women about their appropriate role? And I think that's the important insight of feminism, again, especially radical feminism, around the question of sexual violence. It's not just a bad thing that happens sometimes and we need to stop it. That's certainly true. But it's a bad thing that comes from a certain way of looking at men and women, looking at sex, and looking at power. Uh, and so I think that's important to recognize, especially in this Me Too moment when more and more stories are finally being heard about the routine ways that women have to endure this kind of treatment by men. Yeah. So so I think what you're saying, maybe had it not been for feminism or radical feminism, we would still be looking at rape the way we did pre-60s where, uh, you know, we, it, we, we weren't seeing the full extent of the, I'm going to just call it abuse, uh, you know, yeah. across the spectrum that, that women endure. It was just normal, uh, you know, just normal male behavior and women should just kind of, you know, buck yeah. up and, uh, yeah. you know, if they didn't like it, well, it's their problem. Absolutely. I think you're, you're absolutely uh, right. And, and, you know, just take two common terms we use today, sexual harassment, uh, which is actionable under the law. All right, well, sexual harassment didn't exist until the mid-1980s. Now, by that, of course, I don't mean that women weren't harassed on the job, weren't harassed mm-hmm. in educational. It, it wasn't a legally recognized concept by the U.S. Supreme Court until 1986. How about the concept of date rape? Well, that's a common term now. But that didn't exist prior to the 1990s. And again, it didn't mean that women weren't sexually assaulted on dates. It meant that there wasn't a word to name the experience. And all of those are a product of feminism. So you're absolutely right. It's important to note how we got to the place where we can at least name the problem. We're still not doing a great job of coping with the problem. But at least we are now able to name it. And think, too, um, how, uh, you know, bad a reputation feminism has. I mean, how many women don't even want to claim to be a feminist? Um, Somehow it's even become a dirty word. It hasn't really uh, been given the credit it deserves uh, for the good it's done. I think that's right. And Um, in a way that's not surprising, the backlash against feminism started very early. It was in the 1980s you know, in which, you know, this period in which the country was turning much more conservative, that you got the rise of people like Rush Limbaugh on talk radio who, you know, coined their or uh, made popular the term feminazi. Uh, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. there was this backlash. And, and Susan Faludi's book called Backlash, which came out around 1990, I think did a very good job of explaining that it wasn't just that, you know, men were unhappy with feminist advances. 
but the backlash was also part of this message of telling women that if they weren't happy, it wasn't because of men and patriarchy. It was because feminism had gone and and got everything all confused. So women were, by the yeah. 1980s, being trained to think that if they had problems in their lives, feminism wasn't the answer. In fact, they were being told that feminism was the problem. Uh, and that's not surprising. When systems of power are challenged, they push back. I mean, again, we, we've talked a lot about race and gender and the importance of recognizing also we live in a white supremacist society. Well, when the civil rights movement and and more radical race-based movements in the 60s and 70s made advances, did white America say, oh, wonderful, let's change? Well, no, you had a backlash, you had a, you know, pushing back against that challenge, and we're, of course, seeing that today as well, too. Right. Well, and, and it you know it makes me think about uh, I mean the fact that women were no more than chattel, uh, you know, and how many families mm-hmm. the father of the family basically had control over the lives of everybody in that family, you know, utter domination. Uh, I mean, it hasn't been that long, you know, women have had any agency. Um, you know, so I, you know, maybe when we look at, you know, it's only been a few decades, we've made incredible strides, but if you go back probably maybe before the fifties, I mean, women were just, um, I mean, their lives were, were, were so small, uh, and their expectations had to be so, uh, you know, so minimal. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, it's within our lifetime that, some of these changes have happened. For instance, uh, I have a friend who helped set up one of the first rape crisis centers on a college campus in the United States in the early 1970s. And she remembers when, as a young married woman, she was not able to open a checking account at a bank without her husband's written permission. Uh, My mother routinely signed checks, not with her name, but with my father's name, Mrs. John Jensen. literally invisible in a sense. And these were all just very commonplace things. Uh, You know, and and you can go back a little further and remember women only won the right to vote in this country in 1920, that, as you point out, women were still chattel property in some states. That, you know, these these aren't ancient history. These are very recent changes. And feminism is responsible for them, and we should celebrate those changes. And we should also recognize that on some issues we've lost ground and and that's where i think the pornography interest uh the pornography issue is so important because on that question uh i think we've actually lost ground that the society is much more pornographic today than it was 30 years ago when i first started this that the level of misogyny and racism in sexually explicit material is far more intense today than it was 30 years ago so you know, this is the way social change often happens. There is progress. You make steps forward, and then on some other criteria, you get pushed back, and you, you keep moving. But uh, I think one of the reasons people are so hesitant to talk critically about pornography today is precisely that. It's one of the, the areas in which we've, we really have lost ground. So why do you think that is? Um, I mean, what what's the reason for the backlash? I mean, how can anyone see some of the stuff, uh, some of the abuse that goes on uh, in pornography? And I mean, and not to mention, I, I mean, look, you know, so many of us probably still come from homes where 
it's hard for parents to talk about sex. And, uh, you know, and, and people grow up with these um, uh, abnormal ideas of what sexuality is. And if the only sex they ever see is pornography, um, yeah. is it any wonder that there's still problems between the genders? Because men think they're mm-hmm. supposed to act a certain way. Women think they have to endure it. Um, I mean, it's ugly, you know, Absolutely. Um, and yeah. I'm not talking about tasteful erotica, you know, I'm talking about the slam bam. Thank you, ma'am. You know, the, uh, you know, all of the ugly sort of, you know, cum shots and all of this sort of thing that you see. And I mean, uh, yeah. uh, t- how, how did you're absolutely here? right. And in fact, for, for people who don't regularly look at pornography, um, it's almost certainly much worse than you can imagine. The book, one of the earlier books you mentioned, Getting Off, my book on pornography, which came out in 2007, uh, detailed uh, the way the industry really works and the kind of images they produce. And it's without question that the the overt, cruel uh, humiliation of women sexually in pornography has intensified over the last three or four decades. It's also true that it's become a more racist genre. Uh, and that's difficult to, to sort of fit into an idea of, of feminism making progress. But I think this is one of those places where we see that there is a liberal and a conservative version of patriarchy. So you pointed out that uh, we don't have in this country uniform, high-quality, medically accurate sex education. We don't have it in the schools in most places. In places like Texas, we don't have it at all. Uh, A lot of families don't do a very good job of it. The churches tend to fail on it. And so the conservative face of patriarchy on sex is that very repressive attitude that says, don't talk about sex. Sex is dirty. Sex is only between married heterosexual couples. That's the conservative face of patriarchy, and it shows up in our inability to talk to children in a healthy way about sex. The liberal side of patriarchy is pornography, the the point of view that says, listen, women are sexual objects and they should be as available to men as possible. Well, neither one of those are any kind of world I want to live in. I don't want to live in a sexually repressive Hmm. world where children are taught to be afraid of their own bodies or, or to think of sex as somehow unhealthy. But I also don't want to live in a world in which boys and men are socialized to think that women are primarily sexualized objects for their pleasure. And that is the core message of pornography without question. And so, you know, a lot of times we think of, you know, patriarchy as being merely a conservative phenomenon. But I think what I've taken away from the radical feminist critique is that there is always both a conservative and a liberal face to patriarchy. And both are dangerous. Both are harmful to women and children. Uh, and both also constrain the lives of men. Now, uh, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier that we men have a stake in challenging this. And I think pornography is one of the places you see it most clearly, that men who use pornography do get something. They get a very quick, very intense burst of sexual pleasure, you know, which is to say pornography works. It does what it's supposed to do. But I think most men realize at some level when we're really honest with ourselves that if our sexuality is conditioned to that kind of material, we start to lose the capacity for real intimacy. And whatever one mm-hmm. thinks about sexuality, I think most people recognize that 
what is really important about sexuality is not merely the you know the stimulation of nerve cells it's it's the intimacy yeah. the the self awareness the right. vulnerability the depth it brings to human life and i don't mean that you know every sexual experience has to be some magical you know moment um but that's what we're i think everybody understands that's what we're after as people we want yeah. to deepen well, and I, go ahead well and i think there's an overlap here too because, and and maybe this i'm stating the obvious but um i'll say it anyway um you know when you see pornography and men get the idea that this is what women are for maybe even this is what women like heaven forbid um you know, then you almost understand rape a little bit better. It almost gives license to yeah. rape. I mean, yeah. it, it, is, is that is that? Uh, I, I mean, am I drawing the wrong conclusion there? No, you're you're absolutely right. Um, you know, my friend Gail Dines, who is probably the leading feminist critic of pornography in the United States today, and and I highly recommend her book Pornland. Uh, Gail makes this point over and over again that uh, you know people worry that pornography is violent and it depicts rape and and she points out most of the the porn in the world doesn't depict rape because men don't want to believe that women resist men want to believe that women want the kind of male domination that pornography presents and so in pornography what you see are not images of you know women uh, being tortured or being subjected to violent rape in the traditional sense. Of course, some of that material does exist, but the bulk of pornography depicts women as inviting and enjoying and, in fact, becoming fully female by submitting to this kind of aggressive, dominating, cruel, and degrading sexual activity from men. Now, imagine that you're a young boy, and boys' exposure to pornography in this Internet age is, is you know, younger and younger. By 10, 12, 14 most boys have had some experience with pornography. By the high school years, virtually 100% of boys in this culture have seen some pornography. Well, imagine your sexual imagination from your earliest age of being aware of sex is being conditioned to those kinds of images. Uh, it doesn't mean right. every boy grows up to be a rapist, obviously. It means that we are changing the way uh, an entire generation of, of boys first experiences sexuality, precisely because, as you pointed out earlier, there's so little open and honest talk about sex in the culture. Pornography mm-hmm. becomes the de facto sex education of a large percentage of boys in this culture, and that that doesn't help the struggle to create real intimacy. Yeah, it normalizes this. I mean, just like everybody's starting to worry that Trump is going to normalize all the stuff mm-hmm. he does, <laughs> uh, yeah. that's going to become normal and accepting because we we uh, build up a resistance to all of this. And, and you know, and maybe even an example of it is uh, violence on TV. You know, I mean, yeah. I used to be. I mean, I I like a thriller uh, just as much as the next person. You know, violence on TV. I I, I will admit. You know, doesn't bother me. 
but I've really started to think more about it lately in terms of what is it normalizing. You know, uh, maybe it, uh, maybe that even plays a part in these school shootings and things, because uh, we have these video games and all of these TV shows, and everything is about war and fighting and uh, you know, and violence of some kind. I, I agree completely. Now, sometimes when people hear a comment like yours. They'll say, oh, you think violent video games cause kids to murder. And that's, you, that's not the point, obviously. It's not any one image or any one experience. It's the fact that we live in a culture that presents this to us constantly. So when, when I critique pornography, when the radical feminist critique of pornography is offered, people say, well, you know, porn isn't the only problem in this culture. It's not the only source of those images. And my response is precisely, yes, that's exactly right. Pornography is troubling not because it's unusual but because it it's it's reinforcing a message that's out there in other ways so as boys we, mm-hmm. we all grow up with forget about mass media just thinking about peer interactions or the way adult men sometimes talk to us uh what we learn about what it means to be a man about the the need for men to prove their masculinity by having sex with women you know, I always say that if you want to learn about how boys are socialized, listen to how boys talk in a high school locker room. Right? What they talk about mm-hmm. is women as objects for the acquisition of sexual pleasure. Uh, now, I'm not saying 100% of boys grow up with the same message, but you know, uh, I always say if you listen to a conversation on a Monday in, in gym class in a high school, it's unlikely that when uh, you know one boy says to another, "Hey, did you go out with Susie last night?" that the other boy says, "Yes, and we had a, a satisfying emotional interaction, and and I really feel intimate with her." <laughs> no, what boy says, "Yeah, and I really nailed her," or you know, the the phrase that the, yeah. the question that that we hear so often is, "Did you get any?" And I think there's so much mm-hmm. in that one common way that men ask other men about their interactions with women. Did you get any? Well, get it means that you're taking something from someone. You're getting an object. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's a commodity. And, and whatever yeah. one thinks about what is appropriate sexuality, I don't think it, it's going to be advanced by men looking at women as mere objects to be acquired for sexual pleasure. Now, we've been talking primarily, almost exclusively, about heterosexual sex, about the way the heterosexual male population is socialized to think about women. But we should also realize that these same norms can play out in same-sex relationships, not because it's the male-female dynamic, but because that notion that sex is always about power and control can work its Mm -hmm. way into other relationships, too. So, uh, you know, gay men struggle with this notion that there always has to be a top and a bottom, that sex is really about power mm-hmm. and control. These are really insidious ideas that work their way into the entire culture. And and I, th- I share your concern about how it's all become normal in a sense. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I- I, I mean, even, you know, this idea of domination, I mean, you can even see it in just a regular relationship where, uh, I mean, just recently, you know, I was in a group of people who, you know, we have, 
you know, we had this one guy in the group who everything was always fine until you disagreed with him. And then, mm-hmm. but the moment you, you know, you thought he was this nice, wonderful guy, but the moment you disagreed with him, the misogyny came out, you know. Yeah. And and I think that's a lesser form of, of domination and, and uh, the, the need to have uh, control over the viewpoints or conversation or or whatever it is. You know, it's always about, um, uh, you know, it's always about domination, it, it seems. Yeah, yeah well, what I, you and, don't understand and, 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 about you know, that, Karen, of, no, no, Karen let, me, Karen, let me explain what you don't understand about this. I was making a joke. That, that was a classic male response. <laughs> you were mansplaining to me. Yes. To interrupt a woman and, and tell her what she's wrong about. So I, I couldn't resist the temptation to make that very bad joke. I'm sorry. Well, and 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 I want to and I want to get to the prost- the prostitution thing yeah. too, but I want to just throw something in here. You know, sometimes I get really impatient with the, with the female gender um, because um, it, you know, and, and maybe it's worth saying in the context of this conversation because you know, women are the majority, and you know, I have naively thought for a long time, well, gee, if women could just stand together in solidarity, we could change the world. Until I realized that women have a really bad habit of instead of siding with ideas like radical feminism, they instead side with their oppressor. And, you know, and I don't think we say that enough, you know, like the the women who, the white women who put Roy Moore, you know, who, who voted for Roy Moore or the women who maybe voted for Trump. Um, I think, you know, this, it, it might be uncomfortable, but it's something that I think women really have to look at because they're complicit in their own oppression when they do this kind of thing. And maybe they side with their oppressor, meaning, you know, it could mean their husband, it could mean their father, uh, it could mean, the, the, you know, the priest down the street, uh, you know, could mean the Republican Party. You know, they side with the oppressor because obviously they must get something out of it. That's the, uh, the my mother would say that's the side the, their bread is buttered on. But they have to realize when they do that, they are holding evolution back <laughs> um, and, and they become part of the problem, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I don't, I, I try to work very hard not to tell women what to think about the world. But here I would, I would recommend a book by Andrea Dworkin, and Andrea was one of the leading radical feminist writers in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and sadly died about 10 years ago. But Andrea, among her books, was a really interesting project. Uh, the book is called Right Wing Women, and she actually went to conservative women's conferences and hung out with women a lot. And she, I think her analysis is very interesting. She said, you know, right-wing women aren't just dupes. They, they've made a, a kind of bargain. She said that often right-wing women look at the world and say, listen, patriarchy is very powerful, and I want to protect myself and my children to the degree I can. And they make a kind of bargain with a particular man or group of men in patriarchy to say, listen, we'll, we'll accept this order of male dominance for protection. But what Andrea said is, unfortunately, that bargain is never really a way out because she points out that, in fact, it's in the home that women are often the most at risk, that children are mm-hmm. often victimized by by fathers, stepfathers, that whole thing. And so Andrea was very compassionate. She said to right-wing women, you know, not 
that you don't understand, but that the the calculation you're making is in the long run not going to protect you. And I think you're right that you know the the solidarity of women together uh, is really what's necessary. And and for men, for those of us who have a stake in it as men, to do what we can to try and support that. But you've also pointed out that. You know, gender is not the only dividing line in human society today, that race is a convenient way that people in power can split uh, women, uh, that, you know, these mm-hmm. things are are difficult. And so uh, as a man stepping back, I always think my job is not to to analyze women, but to ask what can I do as a man, what should men do, What's our role in trying to be critically self-reflective about the system we've been socialized into and to recognize that even though we benefit from patriarchy, obviously, you know, my life, the the jobs I've had, the protection I've had, the way I walk in the world without a fear of violence, all of that in some way is how I have benefited from patriarchy. But there's also a reason to want to transcend patriarchy to have a, a richer, deeper, more meaningful life. And, you know, that's where I tend to focus my message, um, to speak to men, because, of course, whatever problems women have in coping with this system, uh, it would be a lot easier if men would step back and be capable of that critical self-reflection. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, I, I do want to mention that we're almost at the top of the hour, and I will leave it to you. Um, do you have a few more minutes? Is there more you'd like to talk about, or are you on a time crunch? I've got, unfortunately, yeah, I've got a another phone call I have to be on for a, a work thing. Um, so we'll have to end okay. it here, but, you know, uh, th- there's – a lifetime of work to do on this. So I hope maybe perhaps we can talk again sometime. Yeah, I hope so too, um, Robert. And um, I'll give you a a final closing word here. Well, you know, I I pointed out that I think men have an interest in challenging patriarchy and embracing feminism for our own self-interest because we, in some ways, men do suffer in patriarchy in the ways that it constrains us. But I don't want anyone to be left with the idea that I think that the suffering of men and women is is somehow equivalent. Uh, You know, there's an old line from feminism that in in patriarchy, men have trouble crying, right? That's one of the big struggles. But in patriarchy, women are afraid of men killing them, that the, the fears and the struggles are not equivalent. But even with that, I think men have something to gain by embracing a feminist and, again, a very radical feminist critique of patriarchy, and it's it's this this idea that we can become fully human if we can break out of the the what some people have called the man box, the way we're socialized in patriarchy to try and be real men. So, I guess that's my final right. thought: is I've been spending the last thirty years trying to stop being a real man. <laughs> I 
I like that. Well, and, and you know, and maybe at some point we can figure out a word to replace feminism uh, unless we can figure out a way to rehabilitate it. You know, maybe we need a, a new word. Um, but, Robert, thank you so much uh, for the conversation tonight. Um, I will get back in touch with you to maybe continue the conversation or talk a little bit more about some of your other books. It sounds like you have an incredible wealth of information there that uh, I'd like to hear more about, and I'm sure uh, my listeners would too. Um, so best of luck to you with this newest book, um, which is The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men. And um, thank you for your time tonight and for uh, the message you are delivering out there. It is so important. Well, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Okay. Good night. Good night. Well, um, I uh, forgot to say at the top of the hour that uh, I had some information to share with everyone from Pat, our roving goddess reporter. Uh, So I'm going to take a few minutes before the end of the show to uh, share some of the information Pat uh, so diligently collects for me uh, to share with you. Uh, The first is uh, short and sweet. It's an interesting quote uh, from uh, Aldo Leopold, uh, and it goes like this. We abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. So that's Aldo Leopold. Uh, She also sent me some uh, interesting articles. Um, This first one is uh, by Greg Beach, and uh, it is about how Iceland elected a 41-year-old environmentalist as prime minister. Uh, Just give you a little bit of this. Uh, Katrin Jacob's daughter, the 41-year-old chairwoman of the Left Green Movement, has been elected prime minister of Iceland. Uh, This was a few months ago, but I've just gotten to share it with you, my bad. Uh, One of the most well-liked politicians in Iceland, uh, Katrin, a former education minister and avowed environmentalist, has pledged to set Iceland on the path to carbon neutrality by 2040. As Iceland's fourth prime minister in only two years, uh, Katrin will office will take office at a time when national politics have been tainted by public distrust and scandal. A democratic socialist, Katrin is viewed as a bridge-building leader that may lead the country toward positive incremental change. Uh, She is the party leader who can best unite voters from the left and right, says Eva Onadotter, a political scientist at the University of Iceland, according to the New York Times. Since forming its governing coalition, uh, the left Green Party has taken bold steps to assert its environmentalism. Rather than appointing a party member of parliament, the left Greens have picked, um, I can't pronounce the name, environmental activist and CEO of Landvern, the largest nature conservation and environmental NGO in Iceland, to serve as Minister of the Environment. The government's new coalition is expected to continue the work to address climate change began under previous administrations. So Iceland elects 41-year-old environmentalist as their prime minister. Um, Indiana governor signs bill mandating abortion information. 
Governor Eric Holcomb has signed a bill that requires medical providers to report more patient information to the state. Uh, this comes from the Associated Press, uh, Eileen uh, Chang. Uh, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb signed a new law that will require medical providers who treat women for complications arising from abortions to report detailed patient information to the state. The Republican governor signed the measure without fanfare Sunday, shortly before leaving the country for a multi-day trade mission to Canada. Supporters said the law, which takes full effect in July, will ensure abortions are provided safely in the state, but opponents argued it's overly burdensome and will further stigmatize abortion, which has lower complication rates than many other standard procedures. Previous state efforts to restrict abortions in Indiana have been challenged in court in recent years, some of which have been blocked from taking effect. The Indiana Civil Liberties Union, which successfully fought other abortion laws in court, said it's closely reviewing the law and has not ruled out suing the state over it. Uh, Katie Blair, uh, ACLU director, uh, says it seems like our legislature is dead set on passing radical abortion restrictions every single year. So um, there's more to the article, but uh, I I feel bad for the women uh, in Indiana. Um, okay, moving on. Um, there was a lawsuit uh, filed against uh, the San Antonio police because an officer pulled out a woman's tampon on a public street. Ooh. Okay, uh, this comes from the Daily Coast, uh, Walter Ankle. Uh, a lawsuit against the city of San Antonio, Texas, was filed claiming that back in 2016, San Antonio police officer Mara Wilson took a woman's tampon out on a public street in order to internally search her vagina while standing on that same public street. According to KSAT 12, an ABC affiliate, the lawsuit charges that Natalie Sims' constitutional rights were violated. According to the filing, Sims was approached by officers while sitting on a curb, talking on the phone, and waiting for a boyfriend. The lawsuit claims Sims consented to a search of her car, which was parked across the street from where she was sitting, and that authorities found no uh, illegal items. Then the lawsuit alleges authorities called a female officer, Wilson, to the scene to search Sims. The lawsuit details parts of the conversation between Sims and Wilson's recorded from Wilson's body camera. According to the court documents, Sims and Wilson's went back and forth about the kind of clothes she was wearing before Wilson began searching her vaginal cavity. This is sadly and disturbingly not the first or second or third time something like this has happened between law enforcement and women. Here is a transcript from Spectrum News of the interaction between Sims and Officer Wilson. Well, you'd have to click on it if you were reading this online. Uh, but this is the... Uh, they have the short dialogue here. Wilson, this is the police. Stand up, kind of lean back a little bit. This is, these are shorts? Oh, it's a skirt, short. Uh, the woman uh, who says yes. The policeman says, oh, hell, okay, look straight ahead. Okay, spread your legs. I'm going to ask you, do you have anything down there before I reach down there? Sims, no, I don't have nothing in my. Then the policeman says, okay. 
From there, it goes exactly the way you think it goes based on the headline of this article, which is lawsuit filed against San Antonio police officer who pulled out woman's tampon on a public street. Um, The police officer says, "Uh uh-oh, are you wearing a tampon too? Sims says, yes. Wilson says, okay, I just want to make sure that's what it is. Is that a tampon? Sims, come on, yes. A policewoman says, huh, is that a tampon? I mean, that's outrageous. I almost... Um, I almost wonder if that is a joke, but I don't think it would be not in the Daily Coast, and I don't think Pat would send us something she didn't uh, vet first. That's outrageous. I, 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 am, I am speechless. Um, let's see. I'm going to close with something Pat sent me from Starhawk. Uh, this is from her Facebook page uh, from a few days ago. She writes, uh, the ten plagues uh, for the Israeli snipers who, behind concrete barricades, shot into an unarmed Palestinian demonstration in Gaza, killing 20 people on the eve of Passach. It is said that the god of the enslaved Hebrews visited ten plagues upon their Egyptian overlords in order to compel Pharaoh to set the Hebrews free. At the Seder each year, we spill a drop of wine from our cup as we list each plague to diminish our joy, for even the suffering of the enemy diminishes us. But as the echoes of bullets ring in Gaza, as mothers, sisters, friends, and children weep, as the mortar posters are passed on the walls, let us consider the plagues that colonizers visit upon ourselves. Perhaps it is insensitive to even consider this as the blood of the colonized pools in the streets. But until we recognize the damage, we can never heal from it, never stop inflicting it and enacting it on others. The first of the ten plagues, dehumanization. We cannot see the colonized as fully human, for to do so would be to admit that we continually violate our own standards for decent human behavior, behavior, that we have become thieves and murderers. Plague number two, arrogance. Convinced of our superiority, our worthiness and entitlement, we are not bound by any consideration for others or rules of common human decency. Plague three, separation. We cannot be in relationship with those whose full humanity we cannot admit, and so we miss out on connection with complex, rich, creative, and amazing human beings who might have been our friends. Plague number four, fetishing of our victimhood. We are and always have been and always will be the ultimate and only victims, and so we desecrate the legacy of those who truly were victims and weaponize their real suffering. Plague number five, self-justification. We have a million reasons why every blow and bullet and restriction is completely justified, why we had to do it, how they made us do it, why we had no choice, and so we voluntarily abandon our own agency. Plague number six, groupthink. We reinforce one another's justifications, draw a tight circle around our own, and convince one another of our righteousness. And so we lose the ability to see clearly beyond the bounds of our tight circle and respond to the wider world around us. Plague seven, paranoia. 
Having made the colonized into monsters in our imagination, we become fearful, seeing dangers and enemies everywhere. We become convinced that they hate us because deep in our secret hearts we know we have behaved hatefully. Number eight, cruelty. We cannot empathize with our victims, cannot let ourselves imagine what they must be feeling, and so we become ever more unfeeling and cruel. Cruelty seeps like a caustic acid into every aspect of our lives, eating away compassion, eroding every institution of care until we become the monsters we fear. Plague number nine, lies. Lying to ourselves, to one another, in the world, we lose our ability to tell truth from falsehood. Plague number 10, injustice. When we accept injustice, we perpetuate it and trap ourselves and everyone around us in an unjust world. This is what empire requires of us, how it warps us under its heavy boot, stomping out our compassion and all that is good in us. It is not the provenance of any one people. It is what we all become when we choose to hold the whip, to commandeer the lands and bodies of another, for it is what the job demands. Here is my prayer on this Passover night when we celebrate liberation, that we can liberate ourselves, can put down the lash and sniper's rifle and the sneer, taste the bitter herb of remorse, let salt tears cleanse our palate and begin our long journey to the promised land, which despite what the text tells us can never truly be by conquest but must be shared. Let us not just spill the wine, but commit to drinking the anti-venom to see the full humanity, the beautiful diversity, the challenging complexity of those we have oppressed. Then will our arrogance become humility, our separation become connection, as we free ourselves from our own victimhood, free the energies we have devoted to self-justification and endless reinforcement of our self-righteousness and truly pursue righteousness. Our inflated fears will fall away, our cruelty turn to compassion, and truth and justice, pillars of smoke and fire, will become our guides. When truth is acknowledged and justice done, then we then can the land fulfill its promise and flow no longer with blood, but with the milk of healing and the honey of peace. Um, you might still be able to find that if you're interested, if you go to Starhawk's Facebook page uh, dated uh, April 1st of this year, the 10 plagues. Well, that about does it uh, for tonight, uh, dear listeners. Uh, thank you for being with me. Uh, I hope you're having a wonderful spring, and um, I hope you are nurturing yourself, being kind to yourself, uh, as well as uh, as those around you. Um, I appreciate your listener loyalty. Uh, I can't say it enough. And uh, please do contact me with any guest ideas, show ideas. Uh, And if this show has been a source of inspiration uh, for you, uh, if it is the well that feeds you, uh, it would be most appreciated if um, you can help me uh, pay to keep the show on the air uh, by sending even a small donation uh, to uh, one of the PayPal buttons on my website at Karen Tate. Uh, dot com. Um, so uh, 
we will sign off tonight the uh, same way we started with the group Zingaya. Uh, and I will let you hear this beautiful piece uh, called the Sekhmet Mix. Enjoy. Until next Wednesday, be well. Desert, heart, fire.